If you have your Bible, you can open on up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We'll be picking up in verse 7 in just a moment as we continue our way through 1 John this fall. But as you're turning there, I just want to rewind all the way back to our first week looking at 1 John, almost two months ago. Uh, and so on, on that very first week, we emphasized one of the major themes that we've seen throughout 1 John, uh, and that is this, who God is determines who we are. Who God is determines who we are. God is love, so, and we are his beloved children who are called to love one another. Uh, this is what it says over and over again. It's been the recurring refrain all throughout 1 John. And that's another thing that we talked about that first week is, is the fact that John is always repeating himself all the time. You know, this, this writing style that John has. He, he does not write in a linear way, A, B, C, D. Instead, he writes sort of in a circular way, A, then A and B, then A, B and C, so on and so forth. He just keeps coming back and writing in, in circles. He communicates through recurring repetition. This is how John writes. One of the images that, that we considered that first week, you may remember, is that uh, John's writing is like a spiral staircase, right? Though it goes round and round and round, you do eventually get somewhere, right? Uh, and, and by the end of 1 John, it's like, you know, you, you've reached the top of this and you can look back down and see the big picture, the whole picture of this God who is love. And, and so this is how John writes. Now, another image that we used, another word that has been used to describe John's writing style is symphonic. John writes in kind of a symphonic, a musical way. It's very poetic. Uh, his, his writing is like a symphony. And I'm a musician, so I love this way of describing it, right? It has these recurring themes and motifs that you would hear if you were listening to a piece of music. Uh, you know, there's this, these refrains that recur, but every time a new layer is added, and so on and so forth. And as, as I was thinking about this way of describing John's letter here, the, the first John, there was a particular well-known piece of music that came to my mind that I think illustrates 1 John very well. And so take a moment to listen to it, performed by the Seattle Symphony. Take a look. Thank you. 
<laughs> oh man, who ever said that headbanging is just for hard rock and metal, right? I mean, did you see that conductor? His hair is flipping all over the place. I love it. I just love it. But truly, this piece of music is an excellent illustration of First John. Congratulations, you're welcome. It will be stuck in your head the rest of the day, um, because that is just how that works. But I think that this is one of the reasons why John keeps repeating himself, so that this recurring refrain, God is love, so love one another, will get stuck in our heads, will get stuck in our hearts, you see, from the very beginning, he has been saying this same thing over and over again. God has loved you, so love one another. God has loved you, so love one another. And our passage today, here in 1 John chapter 4, is like that moment in the symphony that we just watched where everyone just lets loose, right? And it just looks like the conductor is about to fly off the stage, right? John repeats himself once again in our passage today uh, and, and just goes soaring to the very top of his range, just belting this message out and letting loose. So let's read together. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters or liars, for those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God 
must love their brothers and sisters also. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you are a God who loves us, who calls us in to your love. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John continues repeating himself over and over once again, but this time even bigger and more boldly than ever before. He says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God. For God is love, right? And, and this is a, a huge development, right? Everything that he has said in these first couple of verses, he has said at some point already in the letter. But at the very middle of, or at the very end of verse 8, he goes on to make an even bigger claim. God is love. God is love. This is something new. This is something profound. God is love. He repeats it twice in the passage that we just read. Once in verse 8, and then again in verse 16. And so this is the central claim of this passage. Indeed, the central message of 1 John. And on the one hand, it is so utterly simple. God is love. And yet on the other hand, it is something so utterly complex. It will take not only our whole lifetimes, but all of eternity to comprehend. God is love. And so what does it mean to say that God is love? What does it mean to say this? Because you see, it's one thing to say what he says in verse 7, that love is from God, right? Uh, you know, if that's all that he said, then it would essentially mean that love is one of many things that come from God. Or to put it another way, that love is only one of God's many characteristics. And, you know, I've heard teaching and theology that kind of frames love and God in this way. You know, te teaching to say love is one of God's characteristics, but there is so much to God. Uh, things that say, yeah, yes, sure, God is loving, but God is also wrathful. You know, and, 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 and this kind of theology, this kind of teaching would hold these two things, uh, love and wrath, up like they are two characteristics of God to be held equally in tension with each other. And to be honest, there is something kind of compelling about this idea, you know, that, that love is just one of many characteristics of God. And, and, you know, you can go through and study all these different characteristics. And, and that is the kind of theology, the kind of faith that we would have if there were only verse 7 
that love is from God. But John goes further than that. Because in verse 8, he goes on to say that not only is love from God, but God is love. God is love. And to say that God is love is to say that love is not only one of many characteristics of God, but rather love is the essential characteristic of God. Love is the essence of God, from which all other characteristics flow. God is love. This is not just one piece of many pieces of God. This is who God is at his core. One commentary that I read this week put it so well, I'm just going to read it to you. It described it this way. The statement, God is love, puts love on a whole different level with respect to understanding who God is. Love is so central to God's character that it is predicated of him. He is love. And love, therefore, characterizes all of his activities. God's creating, ruling, judging, revealing, instructing, blessing, disciplining, giving, rebuking, sustaining, and recreating are all done in love. There is nothing God does that does not emanate from his loving nature. So love and wrath are not two equal characteristics of God. Yes, God does get angry sometimes. You can't read the Bible and say otherwise. God does get angry sometimes. But that anger is only a subset of God's love. Any parent knows exactly what this is like. If someone messes with your kid, how do you respond? You get angry, right? It's, it's why we have the phrase mama bear, right? You don't mess with a cub unless you want to get destroyed because mama bear is going to come out and take care of business, right? Uh, you know, you get angry if someone messes with your kid, right? That kind of fierce mama bear protection doesn't exist because anger is a core character trait, it exists because love is a core character trait. Do you see the difference between these things? Between these ways of understanding who God is? You see, and, and we're talking about this with, with anger uh, because it's most often that anger is set in opposition to love. And I think it's most often anger that leads us to misunderstandings of God. But it's also true of other kinds of emotions, right? Whether it's anger or joy or grief, all of these are secondary to love. All of these are secondary to love. We get angry whenever love is threatened. We grieve whenever love comes to an end. We rejoice 
whenever love comes true. Right? All of these are rooted in love, which goes down to the deepest depths because love is the essence of all things because God is love. And so this is true about God. God is love. This is who God is. It's, it's at the core of his being. All that God does, he does out of love. Anything that makes short of God's love makes short of God himself. Any view of God that is not deeply rooted in the truth that God is good and God is loving is deficient theology. God is love. This is true about God. But how do we know this? How do we know that this is true? Well, that is what John goes on to describe in the rest of this passage. Multiple times throughout the rest of the passage, John writes in this way, we know that God is love, right? In this way, or perhaps some translations will put it, um, this is how we know. So in verse 9, he says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son. And then down in verse 13, once more, he says, by this, this is how we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So how do we know that God is love? Because of his son and his spirit who he has given to us. So let's reflect on each of these just a little bit. Verses 9 through 12 explain and, and expound on this truth that God's love has been revealed primarily through Jesus Christ. It was revealed among us in this way. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And once more, we hear this theme that we've touched a few times throughout John. God's love for us has moved us to life. He sent his son so that we might live, not just so that we might stop sinning, not just so that we might you know, get our act together or, or do things in a certain way, it's so that we might live. And yes, by his atoning sacrifice, he has covered our sins. But that's just the start of this good news. He has given us his son to live and dwell among us so that we might live. So he says, since God has loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. And verse 12 no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, this is a curious thing to say. No one has ever seen God. And of course, it's, it's true. Uh, but this phrase occurs one other place in John's writing. It's at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. He goes on to say, it is God, the only Son, 
who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And so how do we see God? By looking at Jesus. We see God by looking at Jesus. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that God is love? By looking at Jesus. By looking at what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Right? This message that God is love is at the core of all that Jesus taught. Right? Jesus is the one who taught us the prayer that we begin with every Sunday to begin addressing God as Father. This loving Father who cares for us, his beloved children. Jesus taught this over and over again. He uses this image of God as Father. You know, he, he says, if God clothes the grass, he will also clothe you. If God is feeding the birds, he's going to feed you as well. Jesus tells parables and stories. You know, if, if a father knows how to give good gifts to his children, well, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who love him? Over and over again, Jesus emphasizes and declares, God is love. God is good. God cares for you. This is the essence of who God is. And I think it's really important for us to hold on to this. This is at the core of our faith. We don't interpret God through our circumstances and experiences. You know, oh, you know if, if uh, everything's going well, then sure, God is good and God is love. But whenever things are hard, I don't know, God may not be that good. He may not be love. Rather, the gospel over and over again emphasizes we must interpret our circumstances through God. Remaining utterly convinced God is good, no matter what we're experiencing. God is love, no matter what we face. God is love. And so when, all, when things go well, we say, thank you. When things do not go well, we say, Lord, help. Because we are utterly convinced that this is true of God. God is love. He is the lens through which we see all other things. This is what Jesus came to proclaim again and again. And it is not only his teaching that he proclaims this. But he demonstrates the love of God by laying down his life and being sacrificed on the cross. No greater love has anyone than this, that they lay down their life for another. Just as he laid down his life for us, so we also must lay down our lives for one another. Jesus showed us, not only told, but showed us God is love. If we want to see God, we look to Jesus. We look to his story in the Gospels again and again. Who is this Jesus? He is the one who shows us God is love. And this is what John tells us again and again. 
in 1 John throughout verses 9 through 12. But then he goes on to say more because this proof that God is love is not just some moment that happened in the past. You know, that Jesus came at one time in the past and lived and taught and died and rose again. It is all of that, but it's more than that. In verse 13, John goes on to say, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And so it is not only the historical story of Jesus, but it is the continuing story of Jesus through the Spirit in our lives. The Spirit is the one who draws us to Jesus now. The Spirit is the one who continues to communicate the love of God now. That's what he goes on to say. We have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. The Spirit draws us to Jesus even now. This is not just an old story. It's God at work in the world, in our lives, right now, by the Spirit that he has given to us. You know, in verses 12 through 16, the word abide occurs seven times. Seven times. Or in other translations, it might be the word live, you know, to live in God and him living in us. It might be the word remain. We remain in God and he remains in us. But seven times the same word is repeated again and again, which just reemphasizes this is something that we live now. We know the love of God through the Spirit who is with us now, who we walk with every day. The Spirit reveals the love of God. So how do we know that God is love? Well, by his Son who he has sent to us to teach us and show us the way, and by the Spirit who dwells within us who guides us every day. And then John continues in verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. And there's that phrase once more, as he is, so are we. Who God is determines who we are. It says love has been perfected among us in this. And that may feel a little, uh, oh, you know, scary, a little bit, wait, perfected? What, what do you mean? Other translations may say completed in us. And I don't think we should be intimidated by this word completed or perfected. It's an invitation to, to continue walking, to continue moving, to continue growing in love, to continue walking like Christ in the Spirit. 
This is how love is completed in us, perfected in us. It's this journey that we are on. But why is it that God, uh, that, why is it that, that John has to keep repeating himself about God's love? Why does he keep having to say this over and over and over again? Well, I think it's because we are afraid. I think it's because we have such a tendency to forget God's love because we live instead in fear. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 18. He emphasizes this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. You see, it's so hard to believe that God is love because we are so bent on being afraid. But if we are utterly convinced that God is love, then fear will be eradicated from our life. There will be no fear, no anxiety, no worry, but only trust. You know, as I was reflecting on this passage and this uh, proclamation about perfect love casting out fear, I was reminded of a story that Jesus tells. We often refer to it as the parable of the talents. Uh, it's told in Matthew 25 and in Luke 19. And in this story, uh, Jesus tells of a man, uh, a master, who, who goes away for a while and he gives money to his servants uh, and you know, tells them, hey, invest this, take care of it, you know, do business while I'm away, basically. And then he goes away for a while. And when this master comes back, he checks in with his servants. Says, hey, how'd it go? What's going on? And one of the servants comes up to him and says, hey, you know, you gave me 10 talents, 10 pieces of money, and uh, I've made 10 more with it. Here you go. And he says, oh, good job. And then the other servant comes up and says, hey, you know, you, you gave me five, and I've made five more. And he says, good job. Well done. And then a third servant comes, and he says, well, I took the one talent that you gave me, and I buried it in the ground. I kept it safe. Here it is, your one, your one talent back. And he says, he did this because I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man. You see, this servant buried his money in the ground because he thought the master was a harsh man, and he was afraid of this master. And so the master is disappointed in this man and takes the talent away and, and sends him away. And, and what the master goes on to say, or what Jesus goes on to say about this parable he says, I tell you, all those who have, more will be given. But those who have nothing, even what they have, will be taken away. And this is one of those parables that feels like it kind of has a sting. It's kind of a harsh word. What do you mean? You know, those who have, more will be given. And those who don't have, even what they have, will be taken away. Is this some sort of lesson in economics? Probably not. I was reading, I reflected on and, and, and came to this story that Jesus tells because I was thinking, what if 
the talent, the, the, the money that is given to those servants, what if that's love? What if that's love? What do we do with the love that we have received? Do we give that love away freely? Do we increase the love that we have been given by giving it to others, by loving one another? Or do we instead fear? Because when we live in fear, we don't turn towards others. We have much, we're much more likely to bury things in the ground. When we live in fear, we're much more likely to keep to ourselves. Just like that last servant kept to himself. It's because he thought his master was harsh and he was afraid. I think too often we have, we have been afraid that our God is harsh. And we've lived in fear of him. Instead of trusting that God is love. So we don't have to walk on eggshells around the world. Always being so careful. But we can live and love freely and fully. C.S. Lewis has an incredible quote illustrating this very same thing. He puts it this way. To love at all is to be vulnerable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Are we willing to become vulnerable? Are we willing to take risks to love other people? Or do we live in fear, remaining withdrawn? Whether we're afraid of God, who we think might be harsh, or afraid of others because they might hurt us, are we willing to be vulnerable? You see, John says perfect love casts out fear. And so to grow in love means to increasingly become fearless. Or perhaps another word that we might use, courageous. Love is to be courageous not just reactive to things, but proactive. Moving forward, taking the first step. He emphasizes this a couple times in verse 10. He writes, in this is love. Not that we have loved, but 
that God has loved us. Love is seeing that God first loved us. That's what he says down in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Love is proactive. Love is courageous. Love does not keep to itself. Love makes the first move. It takes the first step, which would never happen in fear. Fear never takes the first step. Fear runs to the back. That's what I did back in in elementary school PE. I would always run to the back of the line because I did not want to have to do whatever we were doing. I was afraid. But love is not afraid. Love is bold. Love is courageous. Love goes first. And so the question I want to ask us this morning is this. What are you afraid of? What are those things that keep you stuck? Those things that keep you from taking the first step? What are those things that keep you paralyzed? That that keep up your defenses? And how can we bring those things to God to let go of them? So that we might grow in love. So that love might be perfected in us, completed in us. That perfect love would cast out our fears. Here's the image that I want to leave you with today. God is writing a story of redemption. God is writing a story of redemption. And the ink that he uses to write it is his love. He's been writing it all throughout history. That's that's the story that we have in Scripture, is the story of God's love from creation on. Everything that God does is because God is love. God is writing a story of redemption, and the ink he uses to write is his love. And we are the pens. We are the pens that carry that love to the page of this world. So what are the things that stop up the pens? Or do we just leave the pens in our pockets? Will we let God rewrite the world through the love that we show to one another? This is what he has called us to, to be a people of love. He is writing a story of redemption, and we are the pens. Will we let his love flow through us. We began with a symphony to listen to. I want to to close with the words of a hymn. It's one of my favorite hymns, some of my favorite lyrics that just expound upon the greatness of God's love. It goes like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen 
could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. If we with ink the ocean filled, and were the skies of parchment made, were every tree on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. This is the love of God. May that love thro flow through you this week. Amen.